0: continue in Matthew's cycle of these stories of the reign of God, a curious reign. Today is a story about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Marilyn did that in early service. I was expecting it now, but she did it in early service. And I'm like, what in the dickens? Uh, And you can kind of see Clint Eastwood walking down the dusty trail right into our church. That would be just fine. So Jesus tells this story, this parable. And a parable works on us. It's not like direct address. I am a declarative Preacher, you have gathered that those of you who are uh, new to my preaching, and sometimes you like it and sometimes you don't. The problem with direct address is we tend to protect ourselves against it immediately we immediately assess a direct address, and I can even sometimes in my in my own proclamation, which is as I say somewhat Uh, passionate, I can sometimes see people crossing their arms and kind of sitting back like this. I'm going to see whether or not I like what this guy is saying. More often than not, Jesus does not preach and teach like that. More often than not, Jesus uses what Soren Kierkegaard called indirect communication. And Kierkegaard, the great 19th century theologian, said, if you want to announce a small truth, just say it directly. But if you want to explore a great truth, speak it indirectly. And this is the reason why as humans we love films. Movies and novels, we read stories. Because we locate ourselves in that story And we can find ourselves in that character and the movements of our lives in that plot. And the truth sneaks through the back door and walks down the hall and takes a seat in our living room before we even know it. And then when our defenses are down and when we relax and when we least expect it, here comes God's truth. So once again, Jesus says to Peter's question of several chapters earlier, we keep keep referencing that, that question that Peter asked, we ask it, is this what you brought us to, God? Is this all it is? This curious, weird rule of God. We thought we'd be large and in charge and we're awfully small. What on earth are you doing with us? And Jesus smiles and says, Well, that reminds me of a story. <laughs> And he tells another story about a wedding because Jesus likes weddings, I guess. He tells story after story about wedding feasts. He chooses a wedding as the very first place where he would perform his first first miracle. You remember that recorded in the Gospel of John where they run out of wine and Jesus is enjoying himself at the wedding. He ain't on the clock. And they come and get him and, you know, and he tells his mama, look, leave me alone. And he finally makes his way back to the kitchen and there's six jars full of water and then all of a sudden the wine flows freely all over again. And it's not just any wine, it's the best wine served in the entire wedding celebration. First century Jewish weddings were several day affairs, People couldn't fly in on American Airlines from Fort Worth. There wasn't any internet. It took them days to get there and accommodations and food, all the preparations. Even if a king were hosting the wedding, it would take some intentionality and it would take some time to put on a wedding feast. And so that's the setting for the story today. There was a king whose son was getting married. And he sent out invitations to everybody a king would invite. The city council, the mayor, the chamber of commerce, the power elite. And you're thinking as I give those phrases of who they might be in Lubbock. I would not know. I've been gone from here for a while. But I can kind of take a guess at who they are in Fort Worth to the people of means and of standing and of popularity, the kind of people who might be invited to a presidential inauguration, I don't know, the people who are well-connected, the people who are the insider people. Now, they don't come. And not only do they not come, I mean, they don't RSVP. They don't say anything. They ignore the king. And he sends the invitations out again, hand-delivered by his slaves, by his staff. I want you to go make sure that the mayor gets this. Put it in his hand. And then, because of the distraction and all the busyness, I presumably... One goes to his business, one goes back to his vineyard, to his farm. The Jesus story tells us that. I guess because of all the activity that these powerful people and these rich people already have going on in their lives, they don't respond even to the king. At this point, I need to caution us. Jesus' parables are not allegories. You cannot assign who these characters in these parables are. I would simply suggest, at least for the sake of brevity and time, that we are all every character in Jesus' parables. long time ago, somebody told me about the parable of the prodigal son that he related to the fatted calf that was slaughtered more than anybody else in the parable. And I think that's a proper way of approaching this indirect communication. And we assume the roles of different characters in the parables depending on the chapters of our lives, don't we? Sometimes we are kind of at the top of our game, sort of like a king. And we might be the conveners. We might be the inviters. By the way, think back when you were in the stage of adolescence when maybe you had a party and you issued invitations. This happened to all of us. And nobody came. And it's not a very good feeling. And then the king gets enraged. This part of the story I don't understand, frankly, I don't have an explanation for it, is an act of violence. And the king sends his crew and they beat a bunch of people up, those power elite, they beat them up and they kill some of them. I don't know how to explain this except to say, I don't think it's the center of gravity of the story, except to say that Jesus didn't shy away from violence, he certainly knew of violence, the Roman Empire, which could be, could be sort of a meta, uh, the king, the metaphor of the king pointing to the Roman Empire. They were simply, uh, they were certainly very cruel to the Israelis and they would come into whole villages where there was some kind of unrest and they would just round up the suspects and hang them on a cross. And that happened every day. To deter any kind of instability, any kind of of insurrection. So this was happening in Jesus' day. Then the parable turns to what I think is the center of gravity. And the king says, "Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down there to Broadway. I want you to go down there to what used, you know, what used to be called the Tech Ghetto." I'm not the metaphor breaks down because good people have gone in there and and redeveloped that neighborhood. But you remember that neighborhood. And I want you to go get all those drug addicts, all those homeless people, all those prostitutes, and we're going to bring them to the wedding feast. The good, the bad, and I added the ugly. I was invited to a wedding one time, a long time ago. And I didn't show. In fact, I was the minister performing the wedding. <laughs> the couple, blessedly, was not a part of my congregation. I was brand new. I was in my first year. Beth, is her eyes are twinkling because she remembers this. She pulled my fat out of the fire. She and Anita Bass. This couple, Susie, had arranged some counseling sessions. We had, it, we had it planned. It was to be on the Friday following Thanksgiving. The church office closed at noon on Wednesday. Thursday, we weren't in the office. Friday, we weren't in the office. We didn't have a Friday night rehearsal because it was to be a small wedding. Just the bride and the groom and a few attendants. But the father of the bride, I'm going to try to tell this without anybody being able to specify, was a very influential person in this city. And I forgot the wedding. And about 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon or 5 o'clock, I get a call from Anita Bass. And Bernie, Anita said, Charlie, did you forget something today? And it was only at that moment that I realized that I had forgotten the noon wedding. I was 31 years old, didn't know beans when the sacks open, and so self-absorbed in whatever it was that I was occupied with that I left that bride and that I left the bride, I left the groom standing at the altar. They went down the street to the Sunset Church of Christ and got that preacher and he performed the wedding and to this day because of the grace of Almighty God every three or four years that couple will contact me and remind me that I missed their wedding. (laughs) And thankfully because of Beth and Anita and Jim Smith and some of the saints that have gone on to glory it all got ironed out and I was able to Continue for another dozen years with you. The bad, the ugly, a little bit of good, all within me. And by this time you're getting the impression if you're listening carefully that Jesus is describing us. And here we are all lumped in together. And it's dawning on us that all this ambiguity is in my own heart. Augustine said the line separating the world from the church is very thin and it runs through every human heart. The good, the bad, and the ugly all lumped in together and it's up to us to work it out. I'm going to talk about that a little more in just a moment. When Jana and I were married when the pastor gets married in the life of the church, who do you invite? Who do you invite to your wedding? We didn't have any money. We just determined we're going to invite the whole church. Well, how are we going to do that? We can't pay for that. And then somebody said, go talk to Carolyn Lanier at the food bank. And I called up Carolyn and I mean she was on that in a Philadelphia second. She planned the whole thing in that, in that telephone conversation. The food bank's going to cater it and we're going to have all these people who are poor people that we have trained in the job training program at the food bank and we're going to do the cake and we're going to do all the, all the refreshments and everything and we had a big old wedding some of you remember that the whole church was here and all these poor people from all over Lubbock were here and we had a wonderful celebration I think I know something about what Jesus is saying go out there and just get everybody and bring them in and cast that net wide and you know that may have been I'm thinking this may have been the wedding that Jesus turned the water in, into, at which Jesus turned the water into wine because they ran out of they ran out of refreshments and maybe everybody coming in and off the street well I'm going to have a third glass of wine and they ran out of wine and Jesus goes back in the kitchen and changes does the great miracle to change the water into wine and here we are all lumped in together There's a feast with God. The story begins with a man and a woman joining together. It's read at every wedding. I read it. At every wedding I celebrate, a a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh and God puts them at a feast in a garden and says, Stay here. The story ends in the book of Revelation with the apostle John exiled on Patmos, emaciated, near death. He has an hallucinogenic vision. He sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared, how? As a bride for a groom. So the whole thing begins with a wedding. The whole thing ends with a wedding. And here we are at a wedding. Now we're not properly clothed for it. We don't have the credentials for it. We don't have enough money or enough goodness or enough power or enough purity to come to the wedding. It isn't about us. It's about the convener. And so we put on the wedding coat. And here's what that coat looks like. It's joy and honor and truth and excellence. No anxiety. Lots of prayer. I don't know how to wear that coat. That's not who I am. I complain about everything. I fall and fail. I'm not honorable. I'm perverse in so many ways. And the convener says, put the coat on and leave it on. It doesn't fit. It doesn't feel good. It's hot. Sometimes I take it off. And I go outside the community and I'm in the darkness and I look in and I see you beautiful people having such a great time and eating together and rejoicing together and bearing one another's burdens and I want to come back in. Give me that coat. I'm going to practice it some more. There are two women in the church at Philippi. They're leaders of the church. I think they're deacons. I've translated this epistle, Iodia and Syntyche. I think they're powerful leaders. In the church, they have a conflict with each other. And Paul tells you, you, to go help those women work it out. Because the feast depends on the reconciliation and conflict resolution between those two leaders in the church. And you know who they are in the life of this church, and it's not up to them, it's up to us. And it doesn't happen overnight. And the church is the good, the bad, and the ugly. But we stay together and we are on this long march to nothing less than, well, it reminds, it reminds Jesus of the rule of God. This is how God operates. A friend of mine ran away from home when he was a little boy. He remembers this story, he tells it. He was about eight years old. Eight year old little boys run away from home. Doesn't feel good. All that order, all that discipline, all that teaching from mama and daddy. And along about eight or nine, we start feeling our autonomy, right? Little girls too, I suppose. And my friend ran away from home. And he missed lunch. And he missed the afternoon snack. And late in the day, he got hungry. He went two or three blocks away. Might as well have been around the world. And he came back home at dusk when it got dark, scared of the darkness. And he looked through the kitchen window to see his mama and his daddy and his two older brothers sitting down at a table with an empty place setting at his chair. And he went in and sat at the table. God will always call you. Always, always, always. It is a love that will not let you go. However much you refuse the invitation and however much you abuse the inviter, it's for you. This table is for us. Oh God, let us see that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Y'all, I'm a Baptist preacher that gives an invitation. And after the word of God is so powerfully read by Hannah, and sung by this choir, and announced by the preacher, I'm going to try to incarnate this invitation. And just speak the words that God wants you. And wants you so badly that God became flesh. He became like you. So that you might know who he is. And today, if you would confess that God, that you have a hunger for God, that you can't, you're not, you want to be a part of the party. And you have some kind of hunch inside you that the party has an invitation with your name on it and that the best wine is yet to be served. We're about to sing a hymn. I'm going to invite you to come. I'd love to have some conversation with you and introduce you to a marvelous group of people who aren't perfect, but who are fellow strugglers. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And that walk leads you to this bunch. God knows we need you. I told that to my friend Scott, who's here in the congregation today, moving here from Fort Worth. I said, Scott, God knows we need you. You will do as God leads you, but God knows we need you. We had a conversation in a Sunday school class earlier How do we go and stake this claim of love on these people who have left? I don't know the answer to that. But I know we need them. And I know that I'm with a group of people who will figure that out. We're invited to God's table. Let's come as we stand and sing.